About four years ago, shortly after his death, and a few days after we had lunch together, I received a letter from Saul Price. Dear Jim, it's always nice seeing you and experiencing your enthusiasm, knowledge, and commitment to your values. You've been very generous about giving me some credit for influencing you. I suspect that's true, but you would have been a great achiever under any circumstance. Upon reading his letter, I turned to my assistant and said, I've been waiting 50 fucking years for this letter. It was well known that compliments from Saul came about as frequently as Haley's Comet. After digesting the letter, I reflected on the fact that here I was in my 70s, and I'm still seeking approval from this guy. What was it about the man that engendered so much admiration and respect? Not just from me, but from thousands of us who worked with Saul over the years. Certainly there was his intelligence and creativity, but that's not the complete answer because as we know, there are millions of bright people in the world, and only a handful make a lasting impact. There was so much more on Saul's leadership qualities that touched all of us and made everyone confident that we would persevere regardless of the obstacles. I started working at FedMart in 1954 while still in college, a path that was followed by many of Costco's current executives. Saul gave us incredible opportunities to learn the business, teaching us the skills and core principles we applied throughout our business careers and then later when we launched Costco in 1983. Saul's teachings had a great impact on our business ethics, our core values, and of course, our merchandising philosophy. He believed in developing strong operating efficiencies, and he continually emphasized passing on savings to customers. We owe our legacy to the retail concept that Saul pioneered, with FedMart and Price Club, as do all of our com competitors in the industry and big box retailers in general. Sam Walton, who started Walmart in 1962, eight years after FedMart was founded, later admitted that he had borrowed many of Saul's innovations. Perhaps Saul's greatest business legacy was the creation of the Price Club concept that as many as, do as a dozen existing retailers and startups attempted to clone. At one point, a reporter asked Saul how it felt to be the father of an industry to which he wryly replied, I should have worn a condom. He was able to be creative and he had the courage to do what was right in the face of a lot of opposition. It's not easy to stick to your guns if you are swimming against a current of traditional thought. His lessons and philosophy, that business is about more than making money and that a company also has an obligation to serve society, are still valuable reminders for many of us in business today. The fact that he instilled these concepts in so many who were around him is, in my mind, his greatest legacy. All right, so that is the founder of Costco, the protege of Saul Price, uh, Jim Sinegal, writing in the foreword to the book that I read this week and the one I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Saul Price, Retail Revolutionary and Social, Social Innovator. And it was written by his son, Robert uh, Price. So this book is a great illustration of this point that you and I always talk about, which is books are the original links. You could be reading a book on, say, Jeff Bezos, for example, and you realize, oh, wow, a lot of the ideas that we credit Jeff Bezos for having, he actually learned uh, from Sam Walton and Jim Sinegal. And then you study uh, Sam Walton and Jim Sinegal, and they both say, hey, I, there was nobody else alive uh, that I learned more from than Soul Price. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to learn from the life and career of Soul Price. So I want to start with this one sentence. Um, it gives you an insight into Soul's personality, but also it talks about uh, why I think this book is so special is because it's written by his son. And he, uh, this is his son writing. He says, for more than 40 years, we had worked together. I had learned that my father expected to be fully informed, openly and honestly, even if he did not like what he heard. So I'm going to talk a little bit about of Soul's early life so we get a good idea of who he was as a person before we jump into his ideas. Um, he, he's a first-generation American. He says they're immigrant parents, talking about Soul and his siblings, who were poorly educated, unskilled laborers, expected their children to study hard, to go to college, and make their mark as doctors or lawyers. 
Soul's parents and others of that generation had high expectations. Uh, Soul wind up living exceeding their high expectations. Um, he's, he spent the first half of his career as an attorney, which I'll talk a little bit about um, today. But also, he um, has the distinction that he he's probably one of the few people in the world that founded and took three separate companies public. Um, so where did he get this drive? What like what causes a person to push themselves so much? And from the very beginning, you'll learn that he's just a misfit. Um, he had a, a physical deformity, and this led uh, motivated him to prove himself through achievement. So this is Saul talking about it. He says, when I was three or four years old, I had an infirmity in my left eye that caused a drooping eyelid. It was something that bothered me and made me self-conscious. And it looked, it almost looked like his entire eye, like you see pictures of him when he was older, it looked like his entire eye was closed. He says, the kids, the kids teased me a lot, and consequently, I was shy. And I compensated this by being an overachiever in school. So, yeah, he's an overachiever, but he's also uh, kind of like a, I guess a misfit is the way to put it. Let me, let me tell you what uh, that means. He says, being an overachiever meant reading at an early age, holding his own with adults in games of cards and chess, and doing well in school without really trying. Soul skipped two grades, uh, but he was also very mischievous in school. So he gets into a bit of trouble, and this is what I mean about being a bit of a misfit. Uh, this is what his, his, his mother has to come into the school, and this is what the teacher tells his mom. The teacher told Bella, that's his mother, that her son was very smart, but she warned that he could go in one of two directions, a career as a gangster or as someone who would do much good. So when I read that, I immediately thought back to one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite entrepreneurs of all time, which is Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia. And he says uh, repeatedly, he says, listen, if you want to understand the entrepreneur, study the juvenile delinquent. The delinquent is saying with his actions, this sucks. I'm going to go do my own thing. And so that idea about doing your own thing, realizing, hey, the situation, what I'm looking at could always be improved. That's something that uh, we're going to see a lot in the um, we're going to see a lot in the career of, of Soul Price. Before I get there, let me tell you a little bit more about his early life. His dad was uh, lazy and most likely faking an illness so he could receive disability benefits. So he talks about the role this plays on his life. He, Saul was ex essentially the exact opposite of that. And he he's dating, uh, which, which is going to eventually be his wife, this woman named Helen. And her parents were very, they, they try to convince her not to marry him. And here's a uh, reason why. He says, my father didn't do anything except play cards and chess. So they weren't wild about me. They didn't think I was good enough for their daughter. Um, uh, he grew up during the Great Depression. And actually, the fact that his father was on disability benefits actually uh, saved the family from, from poverty. And so this is, uh, this is an experience that Soul's having. He would drive across the country at the time um, because his family had to move from the Northeast to San Diego. And he went back and forth a few times, and he just had a really good insight. So he says, Soul would later recall. Um, he says, this was in the middle of the Depression, and I don't know that many people in the U.S. realize how close we came to a real revolution in this country. I saw with my own eyes farmers standing with guns pointed at the sheriff, keeping them from coming on the land and foreclosing. It was an extremely scary time for our country. Um, this also, I think, influenced his decision where... Uh, he thought of, yes, business, you have to make a profit, but very much like Henry Ford, he thought the, the original purpose of your business is to serve. He was very uh, big on serving your customers. But not only that, since your employees are the ones that are actually serving the customers while you're running the business, you need to make sure that you're, uh, that you're paying them well and you're giving them benefits. So just like Costco is well known for doing today, uh, Soul's businesses would pay uh would pay their, their employees much higher uh, rates than, than they could get, like the equivalent, like a competitor would. So I'm going to skip ahead. At this point, he's already practicing law. Uh, his parents were, it was very important for them to, their kids to either be doctors or lawyers. And this is what Sol says about that experience, though. He says, over a period of time, I really learned far more from my clients than I ever learned in law school. So he had, most of his clients were entrepreneurs, they're founders, they're running businesses. And he became completely in love with the idea of business, and he started to develop a passion for it, a passion that he didn't have with, um, with law. But that quote from him made me think of another quote from Henry Ford, which he says, true education is gained through the discipline of life. 
And I think that's what a lot of us are realizing that, you know, I've learned way more on my own than I ever did in any kind of schooling. Um, all right. So he's starts to, he, he starts practicing law, but he also builds up his own law practice. Right. And so he gets clients for his law firm by first giving away value for free. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about his reaction to, to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And he says, uh, he was doing a lot of pro bono work. He says, not charging for one's legal services, especially for a young attorney struggling to earn a living, might not have been so obvious. However, his pro bono legal work introduced him to many people in the community, some of whom eventually became his clients. And this is Saul. He says, uh, I had developed a reasonably fair practice and was making a halfway decent living. But literally overnight, life in San Diego changed forever. So there's these more of these traumatic experiences that that undoubtedly have an influence on our future. Um, and in this case, San Diego is known for being uh, like a huge base for the, the United States Navy. And so I didn't know this was blew my mind. So I want to talk. Uh, I want to share this with you, even though I've studied a lot about uh, the history of World War II. And so it talks about what the what uh, happened to the city of San Diego is they would um, they would do these blackouts when they were in date. They thought, okay, if we just turn off all the power. Um, the the Japanese, if they wind up bombing us, they don't know, they, they can't see what they're bombing. So this is uh, how Saul remembers this. He says, all of a sudden there was a barrage of balloons all around San Diego and total blackouts every night. It's hard to even recall how inconvenient it, inconvenient it was trying to get around dark without lights in your car, without any lights in the street and trying to figure out where you were going and how to get there. It was a very, very difficult thing. But somehow we still managed to keep moving and I really can't recall clearly how we did it. So it's during this time of his life, we see the complete opposite traits that his father had. Um, Saul loved, he learned to love being productive. And then as a result of packing his days full of productivity, he also understood the importance of time. So he talks about that. Um, and I want to, I want to tell you a little bit about that. So he's, uh, let me just give you some background here. He's working nights at a place that is manufacturing airplanes for the the war. It's called Consolidated. Okay, so it says, throughout the rest of the war, Seoul was at his law office at 8 in the morning until noon. Then he worked at Consolidated until 11.15 at night. He would eat dinner, go to sleep, and the next morning do it all again. He didn't complain. He said, I enjoyed the experience. Unlike his father, who had managed to find ways not to work, Saul thrived when he was busy, working hard and feeling productive. His desire to work hard and get the most out of every hour of the day was not characteristic of his earlier years. So they're saying he had to learn this trait. He commented that he never worked very hard in school, at least not until law school. Beginning with his early career in law and then at Consolidated, Saul would continue to live his life working hard and taking full advantage of every hour of the day. In his later years, Saul frequently spoke about the importance of time. So this is his granddaughter speaking at at Seoul's memorial service uh, about what she learned from her grandfather. She said, the concept of time was very important to my grandfather. I remember on a couple of occasions talking to grandpa about how I would be able to accomplish certain goals. He explained to me that we always have more time than we think. How much sleep do you get? He would ask. How long does it take you to study? How long does it take you to eat your meals? So many questions about my day. Well, you have enough time, he would say. There are 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week. We just waste so much of it. There was always enough time. And so on his desk, he had, uh, he was famous for having the sign that says, do it now. So he had extreme levels of impatience. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about what he learned uh, from his law practice. He says, the big thing about the practice during the war and during all those years after the war was that I was dealing with small businessmen. And I was very involved, not only with their legal problems, but with their overall business as well. I handled bankruptcies, real estate deals, partnerships, divorce and estates. Over a period of time, I really learned far more from my clients than I ever learned in law school. And because I involved myself so deeply, I think that is where I began to accumulate the knowledge and interest in business. And one of these businesses that he gets involved in is this thing called Seven Seas. Check this out. This was very interesting. So it says, in the 1960s, Navy regulations required that sailors depart from their ships and come back to their ships in uniform. Uh, because sailors wanted to change into their civilian clothes once they were on shore, they needed a place to store their uniforms and to purchase clothing. 
In response, a few enterprising entrepreneurs opened locker clubs. So what was a locker club? A locker club was stores that ha- that not only had lockers where the sailors could store their uniforms, but offered a wide range of goods and services for sailors to purchase. The most successful of the locker clubs were the Seven Seas Locker Club. And so he winds up giving um, legal advice and general business advice to, to the founders. It says Seoul took an active interest in the Seven Seas business. The Seven Seas was another learning experience for Seoul, an opportunity to see how a large store selling a variety of goods and services all under one roof could be successful catering, this is an important sentence, they could be successful catering to a focused segment of the marketplace. In other words, a niche. Now, why is understanding, like seeing an example of a, of a successful business that focus on a niche important? Because this is the, where we're at in the book now is the beginning of his first business, which is going to be FedMart, which is you're going to see focuses on a niche. Now, I have to tell you, he's got a really interesting story. He feels it's like almost accidental. He accidentally fell into the field that he's going to pioneer, that he's going to create a lot of innovations in, and that's retailing. And so his father-in-law dies. His mother-in-law needs help. She needs a lawyer. Uh, she's looking f- to do she, they're selling one piece of commercial property but he's like they're def- they're deferring the taxes by buying another uh, property that actually produces income so they're, they're investing in commercial property okay and so her name's Bertha let me just read that this part too it says after weeks trying to convince Bertha to agree to the trade Sol was faced with the challenge of finding a tenant for the Main Street property so his this is the property that his mother-in-law is going to to buy okay and it says, Sol's client and good friend, Mandel Weiss, not only helped find a tenant, and so in doing so, he introduced Sol to his career in retailing. So Weiss tells him about this, this business that's called Fedco. Remember, he starts FedMart, okay? And this is a, an example of a very successful niche that's servicing government employees. And so they take this long, they're living in San Diego, they decide, hey, we're going to, there's a lot of people this is, a, I guess, a good indication that you have a good business too, right? Or that somebody else has a good business. Where there's a lot of people living in San Diego that do the drive to Los Angeles just to shop at this store because they save so much money, okay? And so we're going to see a lot of these ideas that he notices in other businesses that he's going to apply to FedMart now and then Price Club later, which in turn, Sam Walton, Jim Sinegal, and Jeff Bezos apply to their businesses. So this is extremely interesting to me. So he says, they decided, uh, Saul and, and two of his friends, one of them was this guy named Weiss, but I'm not going to uh, try to burden you with all, remembering all these names. It says, decided to take a trip to see Fedco. It was a large store located in a non-traditional retail area of Los Angeles near a cow pasture. So what, what's Costco famous for? They are located in non-traditional retail areas, right? It says, Fedco was not a for-profit company. Um, it was a nonprofit corporation operating a membership retail store that catered to federal employees such as postal workers. The Fedco store was doing a brisk business with customers coming as far away as San Diego. In fact, 5,000 Fedco members lived in San Diego and were driving 200 miles round trip to take advantage of Fedco's bargain pricing. On the way back, the, the men had a spirited discussion about Fedco, the membership concept, the nonprofit nature of the business and categories of products being sold. They sold a bunch of different stuff like clothing, appliances, cameras. Anybody who's been to Costco knows what they sold. Uh, they were convinced that it, this is an important insight. They were convinced that Fedco type businesses could be successful in San Diego. As soon as they returned to San Diego, Sol took uh, took these other two guys to see the Main Street warehouse. Everyone agreed that the building could be adapted to a retail business. So you see all, all these things had to come together. He, he had this big problem, he's his, his, trying to help his family. And now they got a, a large warehouse, a commercial property, but they don't have a tenant. Uh, he's learned, he's, he, he learned from the, the locker store. He's like, oh, that's interesting. You, could, you just built a business on, on like a, a small segment of the population that, that have a very distinct need. And then he sees Fedco, and all these ideas start processing in his mind. And the result is going to be that he's going to start FedMart. Seoul was also really good at um, analyzing the business uh, decisions and philosophies of other businesses and finding areas where he could do things differently and give him advantage. This is one example at the time in San Diego, almost, almost all the shopping was done downtown. And he just noticed a lot of weird quirks about these businesses that he didn't think were actually optimized for all the consumers. 
Um, so when I read this section, you realize that like Costco, Price Club, Fedmart, they do essentially the opposite of what everybody else was doing. It says downtown store hours were 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Saturday, and they were closed Sunday and evenings. Personal service was common. Nicely dressed sales clerks provided friendly service. And merchandise was packaged in attractive boxes that clearly displayed the name of the store. So uh, Costco does none of that. Um, and when, when, I, when I read that section, I'm also listening to this audiobook that um, goes through like, uh, uh, the history of the Americas, like focus on like, uh, different Native American tribes. And they talk about the Incas in the book. And so I started doing some other reading on Incas, and it was fascinating. It came across one paragraph that made me think of, uh, essentially, it's, it's the story of adaptability and resourcefulness, which is, I think, a uh, key characteristic in all the people that we study in this podcast. But it also reinforces that like, there's not one right way to do something. That you can have success, and sometimes extraordinary level of success, if you think of Costco, um, doing things the opposite, or your own way. Um, so let me give you an example of that, this, this paragraph. It says, the Incas lacked the use of wheeled vehicles. They lacked animals to ride. They lacked wagons and plows. They lacked knowledge of iron and steel. Above all, they lacked a system of writing. And this is the most important part. Despite these supposed handicaps, the Incas were still able to construct one of the greatest imperial states in human history. I think there's a lesson for entrepreneurs or anybody that wants to master their craft in there. All right, let me move uh, forward. So... Um, no idea is original, right? Uh, like every other founder, Soul learned from other founders. So there's other people that were innovating in retail that he also learned from, and he adapted their ideas. This is an example of that. Increasing consumer demand motivated entrepreneurs to challenge traditional retailing concepts. A new type of retailing, this is called discounting, was launched by Eugene Furkoff, founder of EJ Corvette, with his first discount store operating in New York City in 1948. So this is a guy... That, that was, uh, that was innovating and retailing a decade before Seoul even starts working in the industry. And so his store, which is called Corvettes, it says Corvettes sold, um, I'm sorry, Corvettes displaced earlier five and dime retailers and preceded later large, larger discount stores. Corvettes sold home appliance and other household products at deep discounts from the manufacturer's suggested fair trade prices. So this used to be a law. And this is what Eugene is trying to get around. He says, Corvette circumvented the fair trade laws by requiring, essentially what they did is they, they, they instituted a floor on pricing. And regardless if you could figure out a way to sell it for cheaper, you weren't allowed to. It's a bizarre law. Um, but it says Corvette's, this is how he, I'm not being clear here, sorry. This is how Eugene gets around this, right? And this is an, an, an idea that Seoul's going to borrow from him. He's going to steal it from him. It says, uh, he, he circumvented the fair trade laws by requiring that shoppers became members in order to shop. The membership was really just a way of outsmarting the fair trade laws. Isn't that interesting how these ideas stick around through history? Like it was started by one guy because he wanted to go get around a law that doesn't even exist anymore. Yet Sam's Club, Costco, all the, the, these uh, wholesale retail clubs or whatever you want to call them still use that today. It's very, it's very, very fascinating to me. Okay, so at this point in the story, Sol's, he's like, I'm going to open FedMart. He's going to ra he raises, he grabs some partners, raises some money. But he, he says something that's really interesting looking back at this time. And he says, fortunately, Sol later recalled, most of us had backgrounds that were alien to retailing. We didn't know what wouldn't work or what we couldn't do. Okay, so he's hitting on a very, very old idea. This is an idea that he's discovering in the 1950s. But if you go back to the podcast I've done on Henry Ford, this is something Henry Ford said in the early 1900s. And he says, that is the way with wise people. They are so wise and practical that they always know to a dot just why something cannot be done. They always know the limitations. That is why I never employ an expert in full bloom. So what Henry's saying there and what Sol's saying here is that the fact that we were ignorant wind up being beneficial to us. We didn't know what wouldn't work. We didn't know what we, quote unquote, couldn't do. We just experimented. We thought about it and we came up with ideas and then tested those ideas. That is extremely powerful because that is how you gain knowledge. That is what makes reading these biographies so, so valuable because they're going to learn things that you can only get through multiple decades of trying to do something. That, 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 uh, that learning process of using trial and error, it cannot be replicated in school. 
All right, so it says uh, he raised $50,000 from a handful of investors, including his own $5,000 as seed money. For most of the investors, this is important, a $5,000 investment was not a lot of money. But for Seoul, $5,000 was a significant amount of money. So he's taking a big risk here. But like most of these founders, he does something that's genius. He finds a way to cap his downside. So you need to find ways to cap your downside in life, but always leave your upside unlimited. Uh, so he, he goes in and he uses the experiences he had in, as a lawyer to negotiate leases and to change certain uh, clauses in a lease so his downside is capped. We negotiated a lease for 10 years. We were so uncertain as to the future of this enterprise that we reserved the right to cancel the lease at the end of one year if it didn't work. So one of the most famous examples of entrepreneurs doing that is uh, Richard Branson goes to start, uh, I think it was Virgin Atlantic, whichever one was his first airline. And he negotiates with Boeing, says, listen, I'm going to buy, you know, I'm going to buy all these planes from you, but I need an out. So after one year, if I'm not succeeding, you have to agree to buy them back from me. That caps his downside. This is just a good rule for life. Um, this is, uh, this is, um, <laughs> this is really interesting observation so this is Saul talking he says I used to say afterwards that when we didn't know what we were doing it only took a 50 it only took fifty thousand dollars to start a business meaning his first store and five years later when we were really experienced at running Fed Marts it took five million dollars to open one it's really interesting um, this is an idea I love this idea um, from James Dyson I think about it all the time in his autobiography he says difference for the sake of it in everything because it must be better that's a good description of the early days of FedMart. Uh, he says, FedMart broke about just about all the conventions in, the, in 1950s retailing. Uh, shoppers had to be military or government employees. So this is the early days. He eventually changes this later on, right? But again, he's just copying FedCo. We all copy. That's just what humans do. Uh, they had to be military or government employees. They purchased a $2 lifetime paper membership card and needed to show their card in order to shop. Instead of being open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., FedMart's hours were 12.30 to 9 p.m. Uh, these hours were designed for the convenience of civil servants and military families. Most products were paid at a central register area in cash or with a check. No credit except for purchases of furniture or appliances. In addition, FedMart refused to stock products from manufacturers who enforced fair trade laws. That's why they have that $2 membership card. Um, from the day that FedMart opened for business in November 1954, the, story was, the store was an immediate and spectacular success. Those early FedMart days were not without challenge, though. Some of the downtown merchants tried to cause problems. So now this is, this is what I hate uh, about businesses that don't want to compete fairly. Fair, fairly. And he, he, Sol's going to have to deal with this constantly. They go and like try to like tattletale on them and try to find other ways to knock them out. Instead of competing with somebody that, that is doing is providing a better service for the customer, they find like crony capitalistic ways to knock out their their um their competitors. So it says uh, right before we were to open, a guy came. This is Soul talking. Right before we were uh, we were going to open, a guy came into the FedMart premises. He represented himself as being a betting inspector for the state of California who is responsible for seeing that things like pillows and mattresses do not have any de deleterious stuff in them. Here comes in this betting inspector and he has a long list of questions. And the questions had nothing to do with pillows and mattresses. I politely and firmly told him to get the hell out. If you want to close us down, then take your best shot. And we never heard from him again. So I'll talk more about, um, he runs into more shenanigans like this when he starts to sell prescriptions for, for, for the, be the best price around. Let me get a little bit into, we're going to see in his early days, he starts developing his, his business philosophy. And it says, Sol described his business approach as the professional fiduciary relationship between us, the retailer, and the member, which is the customer. We felt we were representing the customer. This is, I just wish every business did this. Uh, you had a duty to be very, very honest and fair with them. So we avoided sales and advertising. It's just like Costco. We have, in effect, said that the best advertising is by our members, the unsolicited, unsolicited testimonial of the satisfied customer. This is something that we just we learned from Les Schwab, learned from a lot of people. The best form of advertising is word-of-mouth advertising. Like, if you can invest that money, there's nothing wrong. Like, I'm not saying anything wrong with advertising, of course, but... You might feel that the money you're spending on advertising might 
could be better? Like, what if you could invest? Is there ways to invest that money into making your product better? Because if you make your product better, humans are social creatures. And if they come across a good product or a good movie or good anything, what do we do? We tell our friends about it. So that's, that's like Soul's fundamental understanding of human nature, that insight he derived there. So he says, um, the way Soul put it, if you want to be successful in retail, just put yourself in the place of a cranky, demanding customer. In other words, see your business through the eyes of the customer. A few months after Fedmar opened its first store, Sol and his partners made a number of strategic decisions. Uh, they had a belief that there needed to be one merchandising strategy throughout the store. So in uh, some stores that would open up, you'd have this big open warehouse, and part of it would be run uh, by the person that owns the warehouse, and then they'd, they'd like rent out space to like other independent operators. So Sol copied this decision. He's like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. So he, he buys them all out. He's like, no, we're gonna, it's going to be consistent. We're going to be running everything in, uh, throughout the entire store. All the departments would thereafter be operated with a consistent merchandising philosophy. Now, before I tell you another one of his philosophies that I really enjoy, he does another smart move. I feel like all, if you look at the notes that I have in the book, it's like smart, 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 damn, that's smart, smart move. He's just a really clever guy. Um, and so another smart move is he, he starts this business, and yet he caps his downside again. He's still practicing law because <laughs> if it doesn't work out, what's happening? We're going to close down your law practice before you know your next business is, success, is successful? So he says, Sol was still practicing law. He began spending more and more time at the Main Street location while trying to be attentive to his law practice. Eventually, he gave up his law practice and became the president of Fedmark Corporation. By the late 1950s, Sol had changed his career from business attorney to businessman. He never regretted his decision. Now, this is also something that I think is interesting and that you need to know. At this time, he's making this decision. He's lived, he's 41 years old. Like, he, it took a lifetime of experience and learning. There's a lot of people who are in a rush to find their business. I understand. I envy the people I see now where, like, they, they find what they want to do early in life and they're just able to, to let that compound, you know, for many, many decades. But for a lot of people, including, like, myself, you know, you could be confused as to what you want your life to be or the things that you want to work on. You could you could say, go into a, a, an endeavor and be like, oh, this is what I want to do. And then realize, oh, there's a lot of things that I didn't know that I didn't like about it beforehand. Um, so I think that's ex extremely inspiring. It's something you see very common. I mean, uh, Sam, the example of Sam Walton, he was like 44 when he founded Walmart. Um, okay, so now back to more of Sol's philosophy. He says, Sol made, is it, oh, I'll, leave, I'll read my note in a minute. He says, Sol made his decision from the point of view of his own experience. The fact that he was an attorney and not a retailer and that he was an entrepreneur and not a chain store executive. He was never driven by the need to have the most stores or the most money, but by the desire, this is the important part, but by the desire to give the customer the best deal and to provide fair wages and benefits to FedMart's employees. And what's interesting about this is like, this may be rare in business, but companies run with this mentality, they wind up ending up with all the money anyways. Okay, so what does it mean to take care of your employees though? Um, so was insistent on paying them very well. So let me give you an example of that. Uh, employers were paying their employees 50 cents per hour. Sol knew that people could not live on 50 cents an hour. He decided that the wage rate at FedMart would be a dollar per hour. Of, and what was the result? Of course, everyone wanted to work at FedMart. So I, did, I don't remember if at the beginning, I usually try to tell you where I found this book. I might be repeating myself because I can't remember if I told you or not, but I was watching this, this conversation. So first of all, through Charlie Munger, I discovered his love and admiration for the operator, Jim Sinegal. And I was listening to a talk by Jim Sinegal like a week ago, two weeks ago, whenever it was. And he kept bringing up Soul Price. I'm like, where have I heard that name before? Realized it's in um, Sam Walton's book, his biography that I did on Founders Number 6. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. The book's amazing. Hopefully the podcast is too. But um, he was talking about that he learned from his mentor the value of paying people um, like more than you needed to, right? And it's so important because it, it reduces turnover, you get more qualified candidates, and then there, you get happier employees, and then what happens? People are happier at work, they serve your customers better. So Jim gave an example of like, this is a, a virtuous feedback loop that he would get, that um, now people, Costco has a, a reputation for, for, for paying well, and so they just, uh, they just had a, um, a job opening, they needed to hire 200 new people. 22,000 people applied for those 200 positions. That's crazy. Um, all right, so, and I, so I, I don't know if I finished that thought, but of course, when he kept mentioning Seoul, I looked for a book on him, 
I ordered it the day it came. I picked it up. I was just like, I, I was planning on doing a different book this week. And I started reading. I was like, I couldn't put it down. So I was like, oh, th- like that's a good indication that that's the, the book I need. Like when I'm ex- that excited, I think it'll like it'll show. Um, and I think it'll make it more interesting to, to hear me talk about like what I learned from reading a book. All right. So back to this. He's what did he just do. His competitors are paying 50 cents. I was like, that's not enough. I'm paying a dollar. Um, why would you require FedMart wages to be twice as much as the competitors? FedMart was paying a dollar an hour in San Diego and Phoenix. The wage decision in San, Antonio, in San Antonio was simple. Employees in San Antonio work just as hard and as well as other FedMart employees. So what he's talking about is other retailers would adjust market rates down if if there was like a depressed market, right? He's like, no, that doesn't make sense. Like, let me just let me just simplify here, and everybody makes a dollar an hour. Um, FedMart had excellent profits in San Diego and Phoenix while paying good wages. Why not apply the same wage philosophy in San Antonio? Now, th- this, this philosophy didn't just apply to wages. Stahl always wanted to do the right thing. And so he's opening stores in Texas, and this is in the, the age of segregation in America. And so there's constantly, like, you're going to see him stand up because he thinks the, the practice of segregation is disgusting. So he says, Stahl was negotiating a mortgage for the property with a major insurance company when he noticed that the mortgage agreement stipulated that FedMart must maintain separate bathrooms for whites and colored people. Sol told the lender that the separate bathroom provision was unacceptable and that he would not enter into the mortgage agreement unless the provision was removed. The lender removed the provision. Once again, Sol chose the right way and was able to achieve a victory in the battle of segregation. Okay, so let's go back to some of the struggles that you have when you're in the early days of a company. Um, they start, this is what happened when they open a pharmacy in FedMart. And in that talk I referenced from June Senegal, he talks about um, specifically like Costco sells prescription medication way lower. He gave an example of uh, one of the customers that now is a Costco loyalist called around to like Walgreens, a bunch of other prescription uh, pharmacies. And let's say were, he got three different quotes and it was in the area of like $700. He calls Costco and it's like $53. When a customer has an experience like that, like you have a customer for life. Um, but to get to the point where Costco could sell pharmacy uh, or prescription drugs, FedMart first had to like blaze the trail because you had a lot of interest groups that were not interested in seeing real competition on these prices. So it says, this is what happened when um, they start selling drugs. With, they withstood numerous obstacles in operating the fir- in opening the first pharmacy. They had pressure from the local and state pharmacy organization, pressure placed on wholesale companies not to deliver or sell to FedMart, difficulty in obtaining a permit from the state board of pharmacy, he was expelled from the local and state pharmacy organizations, and he received numerous death threats. A rock was thrown through his living room window, and he was treated like a traitor. That is, that is just silly nonsense. That is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, now, he also ran into some, some um, problems. Anytime you're, you know, when, when, you don't have, when you don't have real competition— and you have these like artificially inflated prices, you're going to see human behavior like that. And he saw similar stuff like that when he wanted to sell gasoline. So this is his creative solution to being cut off by gasoline suppliers. All right, so it says, there was nothing new about selling gasoline at a discount. Sol did some research about the cost of gasoline and discovered that the cost to acquire premium gasoline was only a few pennies higher than the cost of regular. So this is his idea. He decided to sell premium gasoline, pricing the gasoline at a few pennies above more than the price of regular. So I'm only going to carry premium. I'm just going to price at a few cents at what you would normally pay for regular. Major gasoline suppliers cut off the supply of gasoline to FedMart. Uh-oh. So what does he do? He starts a fake shell corporation. <laughs> so it says, although the action by suppliers clearly violated the law, there was no quick opportunity for legal redress. Therefore, therefore, Sol devised a solution. He created a FedMart subsidiary that functioned as a wholesale gasoline supplier. Gasoline was acquired in Texas and then shipped throughout the Panama Canal and offloaded in Long Beach, California. This kept the supply of gasoline flowing. So there's an entire chapter uh, all about the emphasis that Sol put on teaching. It uh, starts with a quote from Jim Senegal. He says, if you're not spending 90% of your time teaching, you're not doing your job. And so now the author writes, uh, those of us who were Seoul students would all agree that Seoul, above all else, was a great teacher. Jim Senegal started working for Seoul in 1954 at the age of 18. Jim recounted the time that he received a call from a reporter to answer some, question, uh, some questions. Um, and so the reporter says, you knew him for a long time. You must have learned a lot. And now Jim says, my response was, 
No, that's inaccurate. I didn't learn a lot. I learned everything. Everything I know. Saul had a favorite adage that he frequently found appropriate to repeat. You train an animal. You teach a person. Saul really wanted all FedMart employees to think about and understand why their jobs were important to the success of FedMart. He was not a big fan of procedures and training manuals because he believed that manuals were a substitute for thinking. His emphasis on teaching was expressed in the, in the phrase alter ego. It was a rather simple concept. He used the following example. If the owner of a store was able to do all the jobs himself, greet customers, order and receive merchandise, do the accounting, sweep the floors, clean the bathrooms, he would. But the reality is that normally the owner can't do all the work himself. Therefore, he must hire people to help. He must teach his employees to become his alter ego so that they understand the importance of their jobs and perform their jobs as well or better than he, the owner, would do if he had the time. The owner of the store needs to use his time to do the highest skill work and delegate less skilled work to his alter egos. In that way, the owner will devote him to his time to managing the business and making sure that his alter egos are doing their jobs and doing them well. And here's a good example of that. This comes from one of the employees in describing an encounter with Saul. It says he, which is Saul, comes in one night and we're all exceptionally busy. The sales floor was shot and it was a mess. And I'm out there pulling cardboard, turning the egg rack, making sure the milk case is full, just trying to keep our heads above water. We were drowning. Saul finally grabs me by the shoulder and yanks me back to the warehouse. He drags me back there and he's got me by the shoulder and he looks me in the eye and says, you're not running this place. It's running you. And I mean, he was yelling and on me. The main message had stuck with me my entire life. It made me change everything I did. After that day, I just stayed ahead of the business. His point was that all I was doing was reacting to what was happening. You have to take charge, you have to run the place, and you have to stay ahead of it. Okay, so now I want to tell you about, he's got a really interesting idea he calls intelligent loss of sales. All right, so it says, Saul proved that it was possible to do more sales with fewer merchandise items. He pioneered large package sizes as a way of lowering prices. But why does limited selection result in higher sales? Part of the answer lies in what Sol called the intelligent loss of sales. Conventional wisdom in retailing is to stock as many items as possible in order to satisfy every customer's needs and wants. The intelligent loss of sales turns that theory on its head, postulating that customer demand is most sensitive to price, not selection. How did the intelligent loss of sales work? Sol's classic example at the time was three-in-one oil. The manufacturer produced the oil in three sizes. Most stores carried all three sizes of three-in-one oil, even though the large eight-ounce size was a better value per ounce than the smaller sizes. Most people who need three-in-one oil will buy the eight-ounce size if that's all there is on the shelf. He said most, but not all. All. Remember that point. The price is far better per ounce. Though eight ounces is a lot more, uh, is a lot more for some customers, it is acceptable for most customers. What about the customer who doesn't buy the eight ounce size? That was the intelligent loss of sales. What does limited selection have to do with efficiency? This part is going to remind. If you listen to my podcast I did on um, Herb Keller and all the efficiencies he got from Southwest Airlines and why it was one of the only airlines to pull, um, be able to be profitable. He uses a lot of ideas very similar to this one. So I'm going to read this whole paragraph to you, but just keep that in mind as I'm reading to you. What does limited selection have to do with efficiency? Because payroll and benefits represent approximately 80% of retailers' cost of operations, pricing advantage follows labor productivity. Fewer items result in reduced labor hours throughout the, all of the product supply channels ordering from suppliers, receiving them at the distribution center, stocking them at the store, and checking out the merchandise. Put, now the, the, he's going to simplify all the stuff that he just said there. Put simply, the cost to deal with 4,500 items is a lot less than the cost to deal with 50,000 items. That's the intelligent loss of sales.
All right, so at this time, FedMart's uh, doing so well. It gets the attention of Sam Walton. Let me just read this quote from Sam. He says, I learned a lot from Sol Price, a great operator who had started FedMart out in, South in Southern California in 1954. I've stolen, I actually prefer the word borrowed, as many ideas from Sol Price as from anybody else in the business. I really liked Sol's Fred FedMart name, so I latched right onto it with Walmart. Okay, so I... That brings up a, a good point that I'm going to set up for labor, later, okay? And it comes to this, um, this quote I love from Charlie Munger that I always keep on my phone and I think about it. And he always recommends that we need to, we need to uh, copy or learn the best of what other people have already figured out. So he says, how does Sam Walton, a guy in Bentonville, Arkansas with no money, blow right by Sears? He played the chain store game harder and better than anyone else. Walton invented nothing. But he copied everything anybody else ever did that was smart. So he blew right by them all. Remember that sentence. So he blew right by them all. I believe in the discipline of mastering the best that other people have figured out. I don't believe in just sitting down and trying to dream it all up yourself. Nobody is that smart. Okay, so remember that quote and remember what, what Sam just said uh, for, for later. Okay, so FedMart starts to do well, but as with every business, it kind of plateaus out, and now they're having some difficulty. They have increased competition. A lot of people are co competing with them now. They're copying them, right? So it says, the early years of the 1970s were proving to be quite a challenge for FedMart. So we're, you know, almost 20 years after the business was started. Seoul began to feel pressure and a lack of enjoyment with the chore of running an expanding company with, an increasingly, with increasingly competitive challenges. Sol later commented that we were good at creating the business, but we weren't as good at running the business. So what does he do? He's trying to get out of the, the this this rut he's in, and he decides he's going to learn. He starts learning from other founders. He travels to Europe and starts studying other retailers that are innovating and maybe finding some kind of partnership. Right. So there's a big section on this. I'm just going to um, hit a few highlights. Uh, he he visited three retail chains: one in Holland and two in Germany. Um, one of them was, uh, is it, is, I don't know if Marco's the name of the store or the person. So I visited Marco. Yeah, okay, that's the store. Uh, he talked about Marco at length, in particular, the passport membership concept for business customers. So what they did is they separated their business into, you could get extra discounts if you owned a business. Uh, then he meets, he, that's an idea he's going to use later for the business he's going to start after FedMart. Uh, and he, he gets fired from FedMart. And so I'm setting up him getting fired. Okay, and it starts with one of this person he meets in Germany, this billionaire retailer by the name of Hugo Mann. Uh, Hugo Mann created these things called hypermarkets. Okay, so Seoul's really impressed about it. What's a hypermarket? He says hypermarkets now operating throughout the world are what Americans would think of as large discount stores such as Walmart supercenters. So before the Walmart supercenter, that's everywhere. Target's very similar. They talk about that. They talk about Kmart. As other competitors, you have this guy, Hugo Mann in Germany doing all this, okay? Hugo's got a lot of money. And so Saul's like, okay, well, why don't we combine our ideas with Hugo's money? And so he, he starts this idea of the process of selling FedMart to Hugo doing that. And it says, the negotiation session proved plenty of opportunity to gain insight into the characters we were dealing with. But Saul had decided that FedMart had much to gain by reaching a deal with Mann and his group. Later on, looking back on our times with man, the warning signs seem so obvious. But at the time, we were caught up in the euphoria of making a big deal. So this is a mistake that he's making. Winds up selling the business to Hugo. And he so essentially, he wanted to do the deal with man so Fed, Fedmark could expand, also expand with, with man's money. But man owns it. And it's his money, and he's going to decide what happens. And so... This is what happens. They have a board meeting and it says, the first time that Sol and I experienced a real Hugo man was at this board meeting. Rather than the friendly person we had seen, man launched into a 90 minute tirade criticizing Sol and Fred Mart's performance. He only looked at me, uh, so uh, Sol's son, uh, Robert, who, who's writing this book, is also helping him run the business. So he's in this meeting, it's how, how weird this would be. So he's criticizing performance, he, he's locking eyes on one person, it'd be very bizarre. Um, so it says, he, he only looked at me, never once looking at Sol or addressing a single remark directly to him. Neither Sol nor I uttered a word despite the humiliating attack launched against us. We were finally seeing Hugo Mann's true character, 
a side of him that executives in Germany saw every day. So there's a lot of thoughts I had that came to mind when I was reading that section. And one is like, Saul has a lot of accomplishments, right? But he also started and stopped. Like he'd start a company and then sell it. You know, he, that's why he was able to, to found three companies um, and take them all public. So FedMart's the first one. Price Club, which is essentially is going to be merged into Costco, is the second one. And then he starts this huge real estate uh, investment company. It was the third one. And what I thought about is like, isn't it weird that like, okay, so first of all, he, he's in he's in this he's in this meeting. He's getting just like you know, Sol's a very proud, smart, successful person. It's not easy for you to sit there and have somebody else that you're now technically working for, dress you down in front of everybody, you know? There's a reason why a lot of entrepreneurs optimize for control over money. But then I also thought, I was like, well, it's weird. He came up with all the ideas, but because he did this starting and stopping, sometimes it was, well, no, they were all his decisions. I mean, it was his, I was going to say sometimes it was his decision, sometimes it wasn't, but no, it was his decision to sell to Hugo. So it was in turn his decision. Now think about all the people that took a lot of innovations and ideas from Seoul, but never quit, refused to sell and think about the success they had because what's rule number one, don't interrupt the compounding, right? Sam Walton never sold, His, became one of the richest people in history. Jeff Bezos never sold, became one of the richest people in history. Jim Sinegal never sold, Costco's one of the most successful retailers. I think it's the most successful retailer in the United States right now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there's just something to that. Uh, everybody's got to make that their own decision, but I just can't help but seeing the contrasts between Seoul, even though he came up with a lot of the ideas and innovation. Remember I just said, uh, what Charlie, what, remember I asked you to remember what Charlie Munger was telling us. Remember, he said he never invented anything. He just copied what everything else, the other smart, anything else that's smart, that was smart, and he blew right past them. He blew right past them. He tries to buy Seoul's business, his second business. I'll get there in a minute. Um, I just think there's a lesson there that like if you have a good idea, if it's you have a business that you're passionate about, like just let it compound. Like why start over? Um, I don't know. I I I, I just could, it, the, the contrast is so obvious when you read this book. Assuming you've studied obviously Jeff and and Sam and Jim and everybody else, like it's just like wow, man. I I wonder if. You know, he's also older at this time. He's like 60 with the first time he sells uh, FedMart to, to Hugo. Uh, I just wonder if he'd ever, like he never, he says anything about it, but I would just wonder if he, he regrets that. So, okay, so he gets fired. Um, and now, you know, he's got to start all over. He says if you rang him dry at this point in his life, he'd have a net worth of around a million dollars. So he's like, all right, well, what are we going to do? And so this is where he comes up with the idea for the price club, which is they're really iter iterations all these ideas are iterations on, 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 on like, so you start with uh, Fedco, right? He, he studied Fedco and he, he makes FedMart. Then he has a lot of experience, 20 years almost running FedMart. And now he, he wants to take that a step further. And that's, that's where you have Price Club, which is closest to what Costco is because they wind up merging. All right. So this is the idea. The Price Club idea was finally conceived sometime in the middle of January, 1976, a wholesale business selling merchandise to small independent businesses. It's also what he learned in Germany. He took an idea from there. The business owners would come to a large warehouse, select the products from steel rack displays, pay either by check or and pay either by check or cash. Instead of each business owner purchasing products from various suppliers who specialize in specific product categories, hundreds or even thousands of small businesses would pool their buying power by shopping at a wholesale warehouse. So think about that. That is Costco. If you take out the business part of it and let anybody do it. That's what they're doing. They buy everything. Uh, they, they buy in bulk at a huge discount to what you could as an individual um, could, could pr procure this, this, those same, uh, the same merchandise for, right? They mark everything up with a standard. I think it's like 14%. I could be wrong. Something like that. 14%. What they're doing is just trying to cover, cover their operating costs. And then they're going to charge you a membership fee to access, to access this, this wholesale benefit. And that's where all their profit comes from. Um, that's very similar to the early days of, like Costco's a further iteration on Price Club. So he's going to start out with, um, with business customers. But, there, you know, he's going to run into some problems. So I'm going um, to go right there. I'm going to skip over a bunch of uh, parts of the, the early days. And because you just need to focus on the fact that the idea, when you describe it to somebody, it makes sense, right? But sometimes you can launch an idea that other people 
agrees makes sense, but you have a hard time finding customers to actually follow through on that. So they open Price Club, right? And he, again, he's, he's got a little bit of money, but he's supporting himself, his family, his two sons that used to work in FedMart were fired, so he gives them a job and he has to pay them. So um, it's off to a slow start. This is scary, scary times, especially when you're, what, he'd be 60, around 61 at the time. All right, so uh, Seoul was hoping that Price Club would be on track within a month or two to do $200,000 per week. But by the end of the first week, sales were averaging below $30,000. Uh-oh. Price Club was off to a shaky start. Business was so bad that employees were asked to park their cars in the front parking lot, spaces that were previously reserved for members, just to make sure that people knew Price Club was open for business. And this is a terrifying part in any new endeavor. We could not figure out what was going wrong, confessed Sol. Was it the membership fee? Did we have the wrong merchandise? Uh, the numbers clearly showed that if something were not done soon to change the trend line, the price, the price club was on its way to bankruptcy. So now here they discover something through trial and error that was very surprising and saved their business. So they're like, they're, their brainstorm was like, how can we figure out, like get customers? So their idea was like, hey, what if we pitch the government and see if we can go talk to government purchasing managers and see if they want to shop and, and buy memberships? And so at one of these meetings, they're like, well, we, we don't want to do this. But uh, one of the people on the council was actually the head of the San Diego Credit Union. And he's like, hey, um, we're not business owners, but would you, can we shop at, like, could, could our members take advantage of the cost savings? And, so it's, and it says, uh, we quickly contacted the San Diego City Credit Union to let them know that their members could shop at Price Club. This, this one thing that happens changes the trajectory of their business and saves their business. People join credit unions to save money, to borrow money at low interest rates, and to receive a variety of other financial benefits, including discounts at retail stores. Shopping at Price Club, a wholesale warehouse, was clearly consistent with the credit union's mission. So they're both membership programs, if you think about it. One is a membership saving on money, which is the interest rate, right? The other is sa saving money on the price you pay for goods. So they're, in, they're, they're very similar. This, the kind of person that would shop at like a Price Club or a Costco would probably also find, understand the benefits of being a member of a credit union. So the credit union agrees that they do free marketing for them. It says they agreed to include a Price Club flyer free of charge in the monthly statements that were mailed to their members' homes. The flyer stated that as a member of the credit union, they could shop at Price Club without paying a membership fee. So it's very smart on how they approached. They're like, hey, you already have a large membership base, right? Um, what if we add another value to your members? You don't have to pay us anything. And essentially, it's, it's, it's increasing the value of both memberships at the same time. Because now the San Diego uh, um, credit union members have an additional benefit that they didn't have to pay for. And it's saving money, which is why they joined the credit union to begin with. And, and from a price call perspective, they're, 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 it's distribution and advertising. Now these people realize, oh, I didn't even know this thing was open. Let me go check it out. What happened next was quite surprising. The credit union members quickly responded to the flyer and signed up for the new group membership card. Many of these group members realized that if they could qualify as business members, they would save an additional 5%. So you'd have a 5% discount if you were a business member. Someone in their families might have a business, a store, or a law office, or any other type of business. The un This is the whole point of the section I'm telling you. The unantici unanticipated consequence of this, of this campaign was an increase in business members which is exactly what Price Club wanted. They wanted more people to sign up. If you're going to pay for a membership, you're more likely to actually use the store. And that's exactly what happened. So not only do they get more members, do they get more sales because now they're, for the, they're like, hey, I want to take advantage of this thing I'm paying for. Although the Price Company's investors would have to wait until June 1977 before the business reported its first profitable month, the introduction of the group membership turned the business around. And so, so now we get to the part where we realize, hey, Everything that made Price Club different is what makes Price Club successful. Go back to James Dyson. Difference for the sake of it in everything because it has to be better. Price Club was new and different, combining merchandise features brought over from FedMart with a warehouse format. Price Club differed from its competitors because of the number of items offered for sale. The typical grocery or discount store carried about 50,000 different items compared to Price Club's 3,000 items. Item selection also included everything from automobile tires to institutional-sized packs of toilet paper and detergent. Price Club was a warehouse with rack storage, 
high ceilings and concrete floors. Price Club, Price Club sold products for office and institutional customers, products that were normally ordered over the telephone and delivered to business customers at the time. And most importantly, the prices for the merchandise, whether for business customers or retail buyers, were overall, were overall far less than prices available elsewhere. The operating efficiencies of the warehouse concept and the direct delivery of products from the suppliers to Price Club made it possible to sell the merchandise for less. So now the business is becoming really successful. And what happens when you're successful? You draw attention. And now we're going to see other founders learning from, from Saul again. Now check this out. This, this person, if you've listened to all my podcasts, it's going to sound very familiar. Back on Founders Number 45, I did a podcast on one of the co-founders of Home Depot, Bernard Marcus. Well, look at here. Here's Bernard back in the 70s. It says, even though Price Club had tried to stay under the radar, people in the retail industry were taking notice. In 1978, Bernard Marcus, soon to be the founder of Home Depot, came to see the Price Club and to visit with Saul. Saul took Marcus on a tour of the Price Club. He suggested to Marcus, this is, this is huge. Think about the, the, the difference this one meeting has in the life of Bernard Marcus. He suggested to Marcus that he open his own home improvement business using the knowledge and experience he had gained at Handy Dan. That's when he got fired. Uh, the, the company that he was running before he starts Home Depot and he gets fired from. Marcus took Saul's advice and with his partner, Arthur Blank, opened the first Home Depot in Atlanta, Georgia in 1979. So it was almost a year later. Blending what Marcus had learned in the traditional hardware business with Price Club's warehouse format. So you could think about a Home Depot almost like a Price Club that focuses on home improvement. Okay, so Bernard Marcus is learning from him now. Guess who's back? We just had a quote from Sam Walton saying, hey, uh, FedMart, I like that idea so much, I added it to Walmart. Well, now this is Sam Walton 20 years after the fact. He's coming back to Saul. He's coming back to the, the fountain of good ideas that is Saul Price. In 1982, Sam Walton, who had created Walmart by using FedMart as a model, called Saul. Walton wanted to come out to have a look at Price Club. He eventually tries to buy it, but, it, uh, but um, Saul decides to uh, merge with Costco instead. So he says, Sam was interested in learning as much as he could about the warehouse club business. Once again, Sol was open and generous with information. Sam thanked Sol and returned to Arkansas. The next year, in 1983, Walton opened his first Sam's Club in Oklahoma City. So I want to now talk to you about another mistake that Sol makes. And it's all about the importance that we've talked about a lot over the last few weeks. It's the importance of focus. So this, is, this note I have myself is don't lose your focus. So at the time, I don't even understand why, but Sol was was really he's more interested in like the real estate deals because they would they would buy the property that they want to build on which is just good advice don't you know don't build a business on somebody else's property but um he like he he just started essentially de develop taking away resources from expanding the business that was working to buying more real estate i mean th this is kind of this is a mistake i think but he also like le he gets insights that leads him to make that um to create that real estate investment trust that he takes public but it's bizarre. So he says, some of the company's senior executives and most of the investment community frowned on the companies directing so much of its financial resources into real estate development. Real estate development was a diversion from the company's core business. And this is the weird part. The immediate financial returns on real estate were much lower than the returns on Price Club's operating business. No idea why he did this. Um, eventually, he gets to the point where um, he, was, he, he was more focused on real estate than... Uh, than the actual warehouse business. Um, and so then he realizes, hey, it's time to sell. So we see another trade of it. He's like, I, I'm, I got bored. I want to do something else. It's not clear when Sol began to consider seriously the sale of the price company. It may have been prior. Oh, his, his, his grandson dies of a uh, brain tumor really young. He's like 15. It's also the son of the author of the book, which is just devastating. Um, so it says it may have been prior to Aaron's death, um, but in the days, weeks, and months after, I came to believe that Sol must have agonized over how to approach me about this subject. So they're just dealing with just the worst possible thing that could happen to a person, right? On one hand, he had a strong sense that it was time to sell. He had always believed that his and my business strengths were in the creative area and not in the management side of operating a big business. He was tired of the constant pressure from Wall Street and for more growth. There were only two realistic possibilities, Costco's and Sam's. And of course, if you have to choose between Sam's and Costco, he's going to 
pick his, you know, his protege, or you would assume he would. So in 1993, uh, Costco and Price Club merge, and um, you know, Costco is still around today, which brings us full circle because we started our discussion today with Jim Sinegal in his 70s, talking about I've waited 50 years for this guy to give me a compliment. Like it, how important it just speaks to how important um, Soul was to his life. And you know, Jim Sinegal is one of the most successful entrepreneurs in history. Um, and Costco is one of the most successful companies. So it just, it just reaffirms everything that we're doing here, the, the value and learning from, from uh, founders of the past. Now I want to get to um, the part where not only was obviously Sol had a huge pack, impact in Jim's life, but he worked hand-in-hand hand with his son for 40 years. And so this part is where his son is now talking about the impact he had on his life. And I just I think this is probably... From a, from a personal perspective, the most important part of the entire book. As much as Sol's public accomplishments represent a tremendous legacy, his more enduring legacy may be the impact he had on the lives of the people who knew him through personal or business relationships. All of us can honestly say that there is at least one person who has had a transformative impact on the course of our lives. For me, that person was my father. Whatever I have learned about business... I learned from my father, everything from how to read a financial statement to management, to good judgment and fair dealings. My father taught me how to think and how to question and not to fall into the trap of assuming rather than checking things out for myself. He also taught me to be humble, to appreciate the unpredictability of life, to care for people, to remain hopeful and always to be there for people who are in need. Working alongside my father for nearly 45 years, I came to appreciate how unique our relationship was. My father was a strong man who told me that he had to be tough to grow up in the Bronx and survive. He was very smart, opinionated, and could make his case with anyone. My father was so competent, responsible, and protective that as he withdrew from day-to-day -day activities, I wondered whether I could ever carry on without him. The greatest tribute I can give him is that he taught me so much, sometimes without even realizing a lesson was taking place. When it was time for me to step up, I was ready. What greater legacy could there be from a father to a son than leaving the gift of life skills necessary to carry on? He was a poster child for the American dream. His immigrant parents were born in a small Russian village. He was raised in the Bronx, graduated from high school in San Diego, and was the first in his family to graduate from college. He earned a law degree. He became an exceptionally successful businessman and philanthropist. He celebrated 70 years of marriage to his, to his wife, Helen. He was a good father who instilled high values in his sons, and he never walked away from responsibility. It doesn't get much better than that. Writing this book has given me a unique opportunity to provide a permanent record of my father's life and contributions for the benefit of members of the family, those who knew and worked with him, and students of business and philanthropy, and people in general who may learn about and be inspired by his story. May his life be a blessing and an inspiration. If your loved ones feel that way about you when your life is over, I think that's evidence of a life well lived. I hope the stories on this podcast inspire you like they do me. I hope these, these ideas add value to your life. If you want the full story, buy the book using the link on your podcast player or at founderspodcast.com. And I'll talk to you next week.